Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm your co-host, Kevin Gastola, and joined by the show's other co-host, Rania Kalik. Hey, Rania. Hey, Kevin. And we're very pleased that this week our guest is Jason Leopold, a vice news journalist who is joining us. And we're going to talk to him about a range of stories connected to uh, his effort to get the full Senate report on CIA torture released, uh, this new story about a a military legal document, a scoop that Jason Leopold has uh, related to force feeding, and also um, some other things. So, Jason, welcome to the show. Great to be with you guys. Thanks for inviting me on. So at, at the top, let's let's talk about uh, this uh, story that you've done on this military legal document that shows uh, that they really do understand that it's unethical to force feed Guantanamo prisoners. Yeah, this is a pretty amazing document, and uh, this is part. I, I actually just uh, uh, obtained this about a week ago. So you know, at the height of the hunger strike at Guantanamo. In 2013, if you guys remember, um, there were there were uh, upwards of a uh, hundred detainees uh, on hunger strike, and uh, dozens of them were being force fed. So, the uh, attorneys for you know who represented uh, detainees and you know human rights groups and medical ethical uh, organizations, ethicists, they were just uh, condemning the the uh, force feeding. Um, protocols, the procedure, and uh, you know the people at Guantanamo would would um, you know spokespeople there and, and and various medical officials they would consistently say that you know this was safe that uh, uh, you know a- a- any suggestion that this was a violation of international law or ethics was just completely unfounded and they even went into court um, when the attorneys had sued to challenge not only the legality of force feeding, but, uh, you know, to try to, you know, to change the protocols around. Um, you know, the government went into court and, and and basically said this is, you know, it's completely untrue. So what this document, you know, shows, first of all, it's, uh, or I should say what I did is I, I filed a FOIA request, a Freedom of Information Act request, and I asked the military to basically give me everything they had you know, on the legality or, or on the legal guidelines that, uh, you know, authorize force feeding. And so this is the first of what I hope to be, you know, many documents. And it, what's, what's amazing about this is that it actually, you know, it's a two-page document, and it, uh, it tells us that, um, uh, first of all, the Deputy Secretary of, um, of Defense or Assistant Secretary of Defense the his name is Matthew Waxman. He's now a, a law professor at Columbia University. Uh, that back in 2005, when he was working, you know, uh, in the Bush administration, that uh, he approved uh, uh, via mem- memorandum, you know, force feeding. And uh, in addition, what else? The, the, this document also says is that um, the very last paragraph it it, it acknowledges that force feeding violates medical uh, medical ethics. And international law, and uh, it's you know it's it's an explosive revelation because um, one you have a navy nurse right now who is at risk of being booted out of the navy uh, because he objected to uh, force feeding prisoners uh, at Guantanamo, 
And so here it shows that the military knew that the people that uh, the medical professionals that they were asking to do this were, you know, that they would be uh, violating their, you know, medical ethics. And then in addition to that, the government went into court to basically say, hey, this is not, uh, you know, this, this is uh, not a violation. So, you know, it's, it's just, you know, part of, uh, of, of, of the transparency that's really needed surrounding all of this. And I, and I, as I said, I hope that this is, you know, one of many things to come through. And they're still fighting, uh, obviously, as related to this and the transparency issue, they're, they're still fighting the release of these videos of Abu Wal Diab, the, the, the former Guantanamo prisoner. Yeah, so that, I mean, yes, they're, you know, the government is still saying that, you know, no, you can't have these videos, it'll be a threat to national security. I mean, it's just, it's just unbelievable, you know, the level of secrecy that exists, you know, uh, within, uh, you know, certainly within uh, Guantanamo, um, and basically just, you know, the, the level of secrecy, uh, you know, within the government. I mean, I, you know, we've had this, these conversations before and, and have, uh, you know, discussed the fact that this administration, although it claims to be the most transparent, I mean, it is, I mean, it, it's, it's transparency is, you know, they are, this administration is an enemy to transparency. <laughs> the only way I can, I can, you know, describe that. I mean, they really are. It's, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, hoops that I have to jump through to try to obtain these records. This is is just um, is it more difficult uh, than so is it more difficult than under the previous administration when you put when you like do FOIA requests? It actually is because um, you know if you go back to you know the the Bush years, there were actually a lot of documents that uh, that were released. Certainly the ACLU um, when it came down to uh, records pertaining to the treatment of um, uh, prisoners in custody of the CIA or the military. I mean, they had to go up and, you know, they, they had to go to battle against the Bush administration. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, many of those documents were actually released. What this, and, and, and I should also note that John Ashcroft, the uh, former attorney general, he made it very clear that, you know, that the Bush administration would not, um, was, you know, w would not be, uh, on the side of transparency, mm. whereas this administration, you know, you have uh, various press secretaries over the years consistently saying we're the most transparent in history, and you know they're going to great lengths to basically, you know, block the release of uh, of documents. So what you're now saying that, is that the Bush administration was more honest. <laughs> <laughs> about it, its intentions. Yes, yeah, they actually were a bit more honest. But what this administration, I mean, and it's funny that you say that because this administration, government attorneys in this administration have gone to court and, and lied to judges um, about, you know, about records, whether they claim that certain records don't exist and then later on we find out they exist or that <clears throat> records were destroyed. Uh, there is this um, exemption within FOIA that's called, uh, known as B-5, the B-5 exemption. And that's basically the deliberative process saying that, um, you know, uh, any advice or, uh, you know, that, that is, uh, you know, exchanging uh, hands or, or, or uh, you know, the various agencies are, are, are talking to each other about, you know, whether it's a policy or, or a law that you can't have it. We call it the, you know, the um, uh, exempt it because you can exemption. Mm -hmm. uh, so that that has increased astronomically 
under this administration. You know, uh, I mean, I could go on and on about the, you know, the, uh, you know, it's not just these videos. It's also Bush error photographs, you know, that treatment of prisoners in Afghanistan and Iraq that, again, this administration is going to court and saying it can't be released because, you know, terrorists are going to attack us. I mean, it's it, it's so frustrating and it's a lot of work to, you know, to, to try to pry this stuff loose. And, and, you know, this was through a FOIA lawsuit. I actually had to sue the government, you know, to get this. And, you know, this is something that should have been out a while ago. And the slogan, right, at Guantanamo that they like to put out there is that it's safe, humane, legal, transparent, right? right? Like that's the, that's the thing. Yeah. So talk to us, I guess, specifically, I mean, there's a lot of generalities that we can go into, but specifically, you also did this story this week, uh, I believe, about uh, Mohammed, Mohamedou Old Salahi's book and how, you know, he's imprisoned in Guantanamo Bay and he's not going to be able to read his own piece of work that he did. Yeah, this this was, <clears throat> I, I knew exactly what their answer was going to be. Um, and that's sort of why I did this story, because it, 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 it I've been to Guantanamo several times and, uh, you know, have toured the, you know, the, the facilities. I've seen empty cell blocks. You know, they, they give you the sort of, you know, Potemkin village type tour. And you get to see what the, you know, the detainee library. Um, and I actually included a... Uh, uh, a photograph in that story that you're referencing, which actually has a picture of, uh, you know, the, the detainee library or the sign at the detainee library shows this little book, this little worm coming out of a book. It, you know, it's supposed to look all nice. Um, but in the library, you know, they won't carry uh, certain books that they claim are, you know, are extremist in nature or, um, you know, would, would possibly have any sort of, uh, you know, discussions revolving around terrorism. So, you know, I called uh, the folks over at Guantanamo and I said, hey, are you guys going to be, you know, carrying um, uh, Slahi's book, Guantanamo Diary? And I, I already knew what the answer was. I was my, my, in fact, I could tell you that my story was written. I was just, you know, had that empty slot for the quote because I knew that, the, you know, it was going to be, nope, we're not going to carry it. And, uh, and here's why. And, you know, not only is, is he going to be unable to read his finished copy uh, of his book, but, you know, other uh, uh, detainees would not be allowed to read it either. And, uh, you know, what was interesting, <clears throat> I'm not even sure if it's interesting, but it's, uh, you know, the fact that he said that, well, you know, our, um, you know, the, the, the military personnel who are here, well, they can read it, you know, uh, if they wanted to order it. So um, so basically, you know, the uh, the spokesman said that, Nope, Slahi will not be able to read his own book, and uh, and uh, as you know, it entered the New York Times bestseller list. So, you know, um, so you have a Guantanamo detainee who's a New York Times, you know, bestseller who can't even see a copy of his own book at a detention facility that claims it's transparent. <laughs> it's, it's really weird. We're, I mean, I'm I'm kind of shocked. Is there a way that we can let the uh, the Charlie Hebdo? Um, uh, supporters know that this is that free speech is being violated this way. I'm sure they'd really care. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I think that uh, <laughs> I, 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 it's like you know, it's so funny just like talking about this because it's so fucking insane. Um, and I try to like you know 
I, I don't know when to laugh, when to sort of, you know, make it serious. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's it, it's Orwellian is it seems to be overused with this, but it's uh well, look. Uh, at least, at least we can uh, all be thankful that, like, the Obama administration has um, has outlawed torture or, or banned torture officially, right? Like that. That's a that's that's a good thing. The Obama administration yeah. banned torture, so I don't know what you're talking about, Jason. Say, well, well, <laughs> well, Ronya, they say they, you know, uh, we could get into a whole other conversation about um, Appendix M in the Army Field Manual, which the United Nations, you know, um, committee. Uh, against torture has basically said is torture. <laughs> so the policy that this administration still uses in interrogation, you know, has been condemned by, you know, uh, folks in Geneva uh, as being torture. So, um, yeah, this is, uh, th this is what it's like to live in sort of, you know, uh, this world, well, my like, world. Well, I'm since you're, you're, you're like this, you're kind of like the Guantanamo expert here, because like you've been on this like forever, and you know it inside out. You know all the propaganda behind it, and all the you know you're always getting these documents. So you know the Obama administration is almost over. You know it, I don't. It, do you think like Guantanamo is still going to be there? It seems like. Like I don't think. I mean, if the if 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 you if you start asking if, it's going, if Guantanamo is going to close, um, or at least the you know the detention facility. Yeah, I don't going to close. I mean, I never thought it was going to close, and I think that it's just going to get harder and harder for the administration to try and close it. I'll give them credit in, in you know, uh, with regard to the um, recent transfers of detainees there. Um, but you know, you got to remember when, when did that? When when did this administration suddenly start to take uh, action on Guantanamo? Oh, it was at the height of the of the hunger strike in 2013 yeah. because they were getting slammed around the world for holding people indefinitely who were on you know verge of uh, of of suicide of, of basically you know speaking out. The only control that they had was the control of their bodies, you know, to resist food. And even that they didn't really have, you know, they, it got to a point where they couldn't control it because they were being forced to. You know, ingest. Uh, uh, you know, uh, ensure this liquid, liquid nutritional supplement. So the Obama administration reacted. You know, they reacted to you know what was happening there, and they said, "Oh, hey, we're gonna, yes, we're you know we're gonna start doing things now around Guantanamo." So you know, now um, there's no way, there's no way they will be able to close Guantanamo, uh, and you know, you can't. Even though the administration tries to blame Congress. Um, sure, you know, Congress bears some of the blame, but uh, Obama could have done a hell of a lot more with, you know, with Guantanamo um, than, than he has. I mean, it's, uh, uh, you know, tr trying to uh, secure, you know, his legacy before, uh, before he leaves office is just, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> so let's get into uh, what you're trying to do to get the full... Senate report on CIA torture released because you filed this lawsuit and I just give us an update on where things are at with what you've been trying yeah. to do. Sure. So, you know, just a little clarification on that. So what I actually did, what I'm actually trying to get, and I'm actually working on a story revolving around this right now, I'm, um, I'm actually still, I filed a FOIA lawsuit to get the executive summary. So the document that has already, okay. the document that has already been released that's what I sued for. Now the ACLU sued for the full report. Okay. Um, I um, that that lawsuit that I have for the executive summary 
is still ongoing. And so what I'm trying to do right now is actually get that executive summary that's out unredacted, or, or I should say, you know, fight some of the redactions in that, um, in that executive summary. In addition to that, I'm also trying to get this so-called Panetta review. And the Panetta review is the, uh, apparently, at least according to, you know, various uh, lawmakers, that is the CIA's own internal assessment about its torture program that uh, various lawmakers have said not only lines up with the Senate's report, but also, um, you know, shows that, uh, that uh, you know, this, this, this program was indeed, you know, torture, detainees died, and no, you know, no valuable intelligence was, uh, was obtained uh, as a result of, uh, you know, subjecting the detainees to rectal dehydration and, and various other disturbing uh, uh, techniques. So, um, so yeah, so I'm trying to get that, and uh, and I think what's really interesting about the and th this is the report I'm working on. So, in this executive summary, um, seven percent of it it's about 500 pages. So seven percent of it is redacted, and so the government in my FOIA lawsuit, a CIA attorney just responded to 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 basically explain what those redactions are in general terms and why we can't have it. And just uh, what, what, was, what was so funny about it is that, or at least to me, was one of, one of the things that, uh, that the CIA attorney said in this declaration was that, Your Honor, we just want to make it clear that all of the things, and, and I'm paraphrasing here, all, you know, everything that we redacted, it's not because of any wrongdoing or we're trying to hide any information. It really is because national security. So it was just hilarious that they actually, like, you know, need to go out of their way to say, hey, you know, it's not because we did anything wrong, um, which clearly, you know, that's part of what, you know, the reason that they're hiding some of this stuff. So, yeah, so, my, you know, my next report is basically going to, you know, more or less provide, you know, some insight to, you know, as, as to what's redacted, why it's redacted. Um, so as I'm trying to get that, you know, the ACLU is fighting for the full report. And, you know, that, that's clearly, you know, just in terms of the way FOIA works, um, you know, if the, if the judge actually decides that this is a, an agency record, uh, then it will take many, many, many years for that, uh, for that report to be declassified. I mean, it could, it could take up to 20 years. So it, is it cool if I just sort of describe the whole agency record, congressional record? Yeah, please. Uh, yeah, you can, uh, but yeah. is there any way you can relate it to um, what this, uh, this Senator Richard yeah, Burr is, is trying to do here? Because you connected it to FOIA. It's totally connected to FOIA. I mean, there's absolutely, you know, that, that's exactly what it's connected to. So, so basically what happened was um, back in December, after this, re after this report, after the Senate uh, Intelligence Committee, Feinstein, you know, they voted to, you know, declassify this and they released it. She sends the report as along with a transmittal letter uh, to Obama and um, to the State Department and a copy of the full report to the State Department, to the FBI, Director of National Intelligence, uh, De uh, Department of Defense. And, you know, she said, here's this report, you know. Please enter it into um, executive branch system of records. You know, take a look at it, and let's learn from this. You know, whatever that 
means. Uh, let's let's learn from this whole thing. So the key thing in that in the letter that she sent was she said enter it into um, executive branch system of records. That actually means that the report itself. I hope this doesn't get too wonky. So the report is you know Congress passed this uh, Congress uh, prepared this report. And it's con you know it's Congress's property. It's it's known as a congressional record. But once you transfer a document like that to all of these you know different agencies, and you tell them to enter it into their you know um, database into a system of records to index it, it suddenly changes you know into an agency record. And an agency record is subject to the Freedom of Information Act. A congressional record isn't because Congress is exempt from FOIA. Congress was pretty smart. They were when they were passing, you know, when they passed the Freedom of Information Act and 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 it was signed into law. They made sure that they were exempt and they wouldn't have to give up any of this stuff. So um, so anyway, so the you know the transmission of this document, you know, Feinstein was basically making clear, uh, Senator Feinstein was making clear that. We're giving this to you, White House. We're giving this to you, FBI, and all other agencies, and index it. And you know, there you go. And that meant that you know, people like me, like the ACLU, like you guys, you could file a FOIA request, and the government couldn't say to you, "Well, this is not our document." Now, what happened is Senator Richard Burr, who took over from Feinstein, he sends this letter. And uh, he says, I want all of the copies of the torture report back. He says that Feinstein, you know, didn't consult with uh, the ranking minority member, uh, Chambliss, and uh, she was, you know, what she did by sending you these records was improper. And uh, by asking for those records back, he's basically, and he also said in his letter to Obama that this, these documents should not be entered into any executive branch system of records. Right as soon as I saw that language, it was clear to me that one, someone advised him to send this letter and to include that language because that is so technical and so related to FOIA that, um, you know, it, it, uh, it, it was clear what he was doing. He was trying to make sure that these documents, these lawsuits that I have and that the ACLU have, that there's no way that this report will come out because we are so far along in this FOIA process right now. I mean, this has been ongoing for, you know, a little over a year. And, you know, we're getting to the point where the CIA needs to, uh, and the Justice Department needs to tell a judge, you know, whether these documents are congressional records, right, that would not be subject to FOIA, or agency records. Um, and as I indicated, so, you know, Feinstein made it clear what her intent was, and the CIA, um, uh, uh, you know, clearly doesn't want this to come out via FOIA. So he sends this letter, you know, to Obama, give me all these documents back. And uh, coincidentally, the following week, which was, was it this week, I guess? Yeah, I'm sort of at a loss of the, of the days. Um, the government goes into court and says that, um, uh, yeah, this is actually a congressional record. And look, here's a letter from uh, Senator Richard Burr, and they use that to sort of back it up. So it was so clear that this was, you know, very well coordinated, and that it was a, you know, an attempt to circumvent FOIA, because if the C, you know, if 
if in fact this document is not, this full torture report is, is not a congressional record, that means that they have to process it and it would have to, you know, go through the motions where it would eventually be released. And so that's the big fight that's taking place right now. So this will be my final question to you, and then Rania might have some other thing to yeah. talk about before we wrap. But I know there was this uh, report uh, that Ali Watkins put out about how uh, the, you know, the disc with the report came to the Justice Department, and this is one of the agencies mentioned, but came to the Justice Department, it's not open, nobody's looked at it, nobody's done anything with it. I guess the first reaction would be to think that this is because they just don't care about the content, but it, I guess the way you're talking, it could have to do with not wanting it in the system and subject to FOIA. Oh, totally, and, and that's what was so amazing. So the government, again, as they're going to court to respond to me, to respond to the ACLU in two different you know, in, in kind of the same law, FOIA lawsuit, but two different sort of uh, subject areas. So the government attorney in a, in, a, um, in a declaration says, look, you know, the State Department hasn't even, you know, opened the envelope. The, the, the uh, DOJ, you know, hasn't even looked at it. So, yeah, it's because they don't want to enter it into any, you know, uh, executive branch system of records. And it has... it. It may have to do with, hey, we don't care. I mean, I th I think it's certainly, you know, people should be disturbed by that. But the fact that they won't even, you know, open the envelope because they are more afraid about the fact that, you know, this document could be publicly released really sort of underscores my point at how fucking unbelievable this administration is when you know when it comes to you know uh, issues revolving around transparency and to what lengths they will go to to ensure that you will never ever get to see you know evidence of crimes that uh, you know that uh, that were taking place and that is first and foremost their priority as opposed to saying hey let's let's learn from this, which let's face it, we know that they have no intention of learning from any of that. Um, this is about we have to make sure the public never, ever gets to see this. And what's, what's, it's, it's almost, a, it, it parallels a part of the torture report, or at least the, a part of the executive summary that was released, where Abu Zubaydah, the first detainee captured after 9-11, who was subjected to, you know, the first one subjected to waterboarding, um, where, the, where, where there is a conversation taking place between, you know, various CIA officials who said, we have to make sure that Abu Zubaydah is never, ever released, that he will never essentially see the light of day. And if he dies, you know, in custody, we have to cremate him. So, you know, they were talking about disappearing this man. And it's the same thing that they're, you know, doing with this, you know, with this, uh, uh, with this torture report. We have to disappear this. We have to make sure that nobody ever sees this. Thanks, Jason. We appreciate We're... you coming on and, like, discussing all this in depth. Um, thank you for everything you're doing. I mean, you really are, like, a one-man... <laughs> like a one-man FOIA machine. <laughs> yeah. I, well, thank you, guys. No, FOIA I, terrorist, terrorist, right? Yeah, you're a FOIA terrorist. Can we call you that? FOIA yeah. <laughs> yes, you kidding? I, I own that shit You're now. a freedom of information extremist. Yeah. <laughs> And welcome back uh, to our discussion portion. Um, so, Kevin, you had a story that you wanted to talk about that you actually just wrote about. Why don't you go ahead and uh, 
get into it. Yeah, and I think this actually goes really well with the interview we just did with Jason uh, because it's, uh, well, it's more motherfuckery from the government in order to, like, hide exactly what it's been doing and to also be completely unfair to a person who had his rights supremely violated. And so uh, the story is, uh, this involves this uh, Somali-American his name is Goulet Muhammad. And first, I'm going to start off by giving some background, which is that he was, um, he took a trip to, uh, he, he, he left in 2009, uh, left the country. He, was in, he, he, he went to Yemen. He, you know, he was involved in doing some studies, and he was in Kuwait. He applied for a, a visitor's visa, and he was there. Uh, for educational purposes, was there in Kuwait. And when he went to renew his visitor's visa on December 20th, 2010, he was put in handcuffs and blindfolded by men in in civilian clothes. She has no idea who these men are. And he was taken to a location about 15 minutes from the airport. Um, And this is is what he uh, has said is his his story and he was kept in detention for over a week and and experienced torture uh then the interrogators whoever they were transferred him to a deportation facility on december 28th and kuwaiti officials then um attempted to deport him and as he was being deported he found out that he had been placed on the no-fly list and he was in this deportation facility for a couple weeks. Uh, during that period of time, FBI agents apparently visited him at least two times. And Muhammad has said that they tried to pressure him to forgo his right to a lawyer. Uh, they had him submit to invasive questioning. And they even tried to ask him to become uh, or, or tried to convince him to become an informant for the FBI when he returned to the United States. So he came back to the U.S. and... Um, after a period of time, decided to file a lawsuit uh, alleging that his constitutional right to re-enter the United States and also his procedural due process rights had been violated. Now, in the last um, months here, and I've been covering this uh, over at Fire Dog Lake, is the case has been uh, moving onward with the government claiming that because of the state secrets privilege, they're trying to invoke what what we've talked a little bit about before on this program is the state secrets privilege. They're trying to get the case tossed out because they say if they revealed these state secrets, then uh, there would be all this, you know, risk to national security, blah, 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 blah. And the judge has not believed uh, much of anything that they're putting forward. In fact, They've been struggling to persuade the judge that this is, in fact, the case. And I can read you, because um, I think this is actually really remarkable, what, what the judge has said. His name is Anthony Tranga, and this is in the Eastern District of Virginia. And what, they, what he said is that Muhammad's claims, quote, raise issues concerning the extent to which and the methods by which a citizen's freedom of travel and associated liberties can be curtailed in the name of national security, given the fundamental interest of all citizens in being protected from terrorist violence. One central issue is the extent to which the war on terrorism uh, may expand the ability of the executive branch to act in ways that cannot otherwise be justified. 
The case involves the extraordinary exercise of executive branch authority to operate a program that results in the deprivation of basic liberties according to secret executive branch decision-making without pre-deprivation judicial review based on a criteria that require, at a minimum, nothing more than a suspicion of future dangerousness and without the opportunity for an affected citizen to learn of and respond to the information relied upon for the government's decision either before or after the deprivation. So you've got a sympathetic judge who doesn't really believe that the government can just come into his courtroom and claim state secrets and make it impossible for Gulay Muhammad to challenge the placement, his placement on no-fly list. So are you still with me, Rania? Yeah, I'm still with you. Okay, so this is a sort of interesting case, but it, it doesn't rise to the level of extraordinary yet, in my opinion, although I do have a problem with what the government is doing. But we haven't reached an extraordinary level of motherfuckery until on January 29th, the FBI placed his brother, Lieben Mohammed, on its most wanted terrorist list. And they knew uh, the government had for the longest time had this hearing in Gulay Mohammed's lawsuit scheduled for January 30th where we come in and uh, the government was going to ask the judge to dismiss the case and ask for the judge to make a ruling to request for summary judgment so the case could be thrown out and the day before this major hearing on this issue the FBI uh, designates Gulay Muhammad's brother as a most wanted terrorist for providing allegedly material support and resources to a designated foreign terrorist organization. Now, uh, how do we start to suspect that this isn't just purely coincidental that this is happening? Well, the warrant was stamped and ready to be executed on February 7th of last year in 2014. So at any point, they could have proceeded to execute the warrant and go after uh, Lieben if he actually is a terrorist. Also, here's what's interesting, and I think you'll like this, Rania, is that the thing that they're worried about Lieben or, or what they want us to believe is dangerous is that he was a cab driver, and he drove around Washington, D.C., and because he drove around Washington, D.C., this is what the... Carl Gattis, the special agent in charge of the counterterrorism division at the FBI's Washington field offices, said, he said, it is important for us to locate Muhammad because he has knowledge of the Washington, D.C. area. Um, and, and he also said he has an intent to join al-Shabaab in East Africa. So but he's got this knowledge of the infrastructure in D.C., such as shopping areas, the metro, airports, and government buildings, this makes him an asset to his terrorist associates who might plot attacks on U.S. soil. Wow. I just want to tell you that uh, basically what the FBI is saying there is that because they have uh, Goulet's brother now, al-Shabaab leaders aren't going to have to like log on to Google Street View and look at where everything is located in D.C. so that they can plot and select their targets for attacks. So essentially that's what they're claiming makes him a material supporter of terrorism is that he's going to be in Somalia and link up with al-Shabaab and be able to 
like assist them because he has experience as a cab driver. And that, as far as I can tell, is the extent of what they're alleging is Lieben's crime, if he's even involved in Al-Shabaab at all, because Gadier Abbas, who is the uh, is Goulet's lawyer, is basically saying that the timing of this is ultra suspicious, that it looks like it's all a ploy to get the lawsuit tossed out, that in fact um, Lieben was an outspoken supporter of Goulet before he uh, came, uh, tr- trying to get him to come back to the United States while he was um, in Kuwait. Uh, and also, uh, he has himself, Lieben was being harassed by figures who seem to be FBI informants. And so the family has no idea where Lieben is and has actually even gone to the FBI to ask if they know where he's located, could help them find him. But it's suspected that he fled the United States because he was tired of being harassed by the FBI. So there is uh, so much going on here that is uh, just, you know, clearly outrageous and um i have no idea where it's gonna go but uh it's so outrageous yeah we'll definitely have to keep our um our eye on that story and hopefully you can give us updates um it sounds like it's gonna continue to be pretty explosive yeah and they're and they're and they're losing because the no-fly list just so for, for quick establishing this and we talked about the no-fly list before on this show the government's losing in court when it goes in there and there are cases and people are challenging the no-fly list. And I think that's the main issue now is that things are so desperate for them that they have to resort to these uh, really uh, outrageous acts where they would have the FBI place somebody on a most wanted terrorist list who's who's a relative, stigmatize them as a, warned, uh, as a wanted terrorist so that they could then get the judge to give them what they want in court it's it's pretty much like extortion to, to be honest it's like uh and and then and it's really awful so um oh and uh so did you want me to go on and uh last week we talked about uh jeffrey sterling yeah yeah why don't you because some things have happened since then and and we did this really uh, good interview with Marcy Wheeler, and we're really glad she gave us the time. And uh, she's one of the few journalists that was covering the case. And uh, to follow up and just close the loop here, we wanted to just highlight the fact that Jeffrey Sterling was, in fact, convicted of these uh, charges that were alleged against him of violating the Espionage Act and, and leaking um, uh, the information related to this operation in Iran, Operation Merlin, to New York Times reporter James Risen. And I won't fully get into the case again, but just to sort of highlight the significance of this conviction is I just think it really lowers the bar for what the government has to do to convict somebody of these, of these serious, these are serious felony crimes, um, that, uh, Sterling was convicted. He faces potential jail time. He could probably do anywhere between 8 to 20 years, um, given the fact that he was convicted of these uh, nine charges. Um, a couple of them were ob- obstruction of justice, and then um, uh, and so uh, I think this is Im- incredible. I, it had been 30 years since a trial like this had gone on where it was targeting a, a government employee accused of a leak to the press uh, back in 1985. Uh, there was a 
um, uh, someone uh, named Sterling Morrison who was accused of leaking uh, stuff about Navy warships, and, and this was in the heat, uh, you know, at the height of like the Cold War and everything. And so um, now, I think it just this, Jeffrey Sterling was one of these original. Uh, people who were facing these leak prosecutions that the Obama administration had brought, the, you know, the record number of leak prosecutions that have been brought. Uh, he's going to serve jail time. He's now one of the few people that have been uh, convicted of the Espionage Act offenses, um, and he went to trial. Uh, there are others who have pled, um, but like he and then Chelsea Manning, although was in a, a a military court, is the other person where there was a full trial and she was convicted of espionage act violations. And then you have people like former uh, CIA officer John Kiriakou who pled guilty and and went to prison on other charges, but in order to escape going to trial and possibly being convicted of espionage act violations, you have NSA whistleblower Thomas Drake being. Um, someone who's prominent and the case collapsed and escaped uh, getting charged, I mean, getting convicted of Espionage Act violation by uh, going and uh, pleading to a lesser charge. And you've got people like Stephen Kim, uh, this former State Department employee who uh, who leaked, who, who took a plea and went to jail and uh, pled guilty to violating the Espionage Act. So you have all these, like, this is a really big thing that the government is doing is coming after people, and it now becomes lower. And then the other thing is to say about James Risen is one of the things that I thought was remarkable, I want to get this in here as like a final thought, is that the Eric Holder made this statement, Attorney General Eric Holder made the statement about how uh, this this trial showed that we could hold this trial and we could basically not violate the rights of or, or disrupt the work of journalists in the process because along the way they were trying to force him to testify against Jeffrey Sterling and the government's whole theory along the way was that Sterling had given this information to Ryzen and and then they decided they could win without having Ryzen or, or, or gave up on trying to force him to testify and the way that Holder's talking is remarkable and very offensive to me because everything that happened before is we just pretend like it just didn't happen, I guess, because uh, they got his records for his credit card transactions. They had, like, his phone transactions. They had uh, things he was doing on his email, all sorts of stuff that they had no right to get because it had, you know, it was just for, like, their fishing expedition. And none of that's an issue now because you didn't call him to testify and you want to pretend like you did this all in respect of press freedom. It's offensive. And so um, that's basically what I got to say. I think it's remarkable and it is really important. There should be more media paying attention to these kinds of cases. What happens to people like Jeffrey Sterling has huge implications for freedom of the press, yet for the most part, uh, the story barely gets any attention in uh, news media, and and that's a shame. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, so um, I haven't actually talked. I'm, you know, in terms of another lawsuit that's taking place, it's a little bit has a has a much different flavor um, that I have not talked about on the show yet, but I have been covering for the Electronic Intifada. Is um, 
this uh, this these accusations against um, Alan Dershowitz, the Harvard law professor and famous um, defense attorney for all kinds of interesting characters who kill their wives and rape women, and um, also Israel's greatest defender. Um, Dershowitz, uh, last month, uh, the end of last month, was accused in a court filing of having um, of having had of having like had sex with an underage girl who was a sex slave to Jeffrey Epstein, a billionaire hedge fund financier. He is not a billionaire, but he claimed to be a hedge fund financier for billionaires. He he does have a, he's a, has a lot of money though. Um, Jeffrey Epstein, if you don't know who he is. Um, he is uh, this, like I said, this, this billionaire hedge fund financier who was very popular at one point and basically like traveled in very, very influential elite circles. Um, he was buddies with Bill Clinton and, um, you know, had, fr- I mean, just friends with like all kinds of billionaires and very, very wealthy people and, you know, high, high powered politicians and world leaders. And so. Uh, back in 2008, he um, actually went to jail for like running the sex slave ring. Um, there was this massive investigation into it. He was basically like luring young girls to his Palm Beach mansion in Florida um, and like grooming them as his like personal sex objects. It's really, really a disgusting story. He raped them, and um, in some cases, some of the girls like he would traffic them to other parts of the country and the world. And then have them, and then force them to have sex with his associates for the purposes of like business, helping him make business partnerships and also blackmail. Um, and the, so this has like been, and I mean the FBI, you know, he was being investigated in Florida, in Palm Beach, but his defense team, which Alan Dershowitz was on, was made up with uh, made up of like these really, really um, high-profile uh, lawyers. One of them, for example, was Kenneth Starr, who, if you don't know who he is, he basically, like, led the impeachment campaign against Bill Clinton um, for having consensual sex with someone (laughs) Um, and lying about it. (laughs) Kenneth Starr was the lead defense attorney for this man who was, like, running an underage sex ring. Um, Anyways, so uh, it's a a crazy story. And, I mean, like, it's, it's insane because it's the implications of what happened are a big deal. So... So basically, there was this big investigation, but this this group of like high powered attorneys led by Alan Dershowitz and Kenneth Starr uh, were intimidating witnesses. They hired private investigators to follow some of his rape victims around and find dirt on them and harass them. And they also Alan Dershowitz personally, like he um, he mined the MySpace pages of Jeffrey Epstein's like 14, 15, and 16-year-old victims and looked for um, any references to marijuana and alcohol and then sent that to the um, district attorney's office and the police department to try and discredit their character. Um, So, I mean, it's just insane what they did. And then, um, and and this kind of like goes beyond, this is more of like a mafia-style uh, situation that kind of goes beyond the purview of like a typical, you know, your typical attorneys. Um, but I guess this is what happens when you're really wealthy um, and you're accused of stuff. But anyway, so then the FBI got involved and the federal government got involved and the FBI like had like apparently like had mountains of evidence proving that Jeffrey Epstein had had like, r- you know, raped no less than like 40 underage girls. Um, and it was believed to be many more than that. I mean, it's a messed up story. Uh, but Basically, the crazy part is that Alan Dershowitz helped um, secure this really, like, the sweetheart plea deal uh, 
that uh, basically said, okay, you, you, um, you know, Jeffrey Epstein uh, pleads guilty to, like, a charge or two of, you know, soliciting prostitution from underage girls um, and goes to jail for 18 months. Um, and in exchange, the U.S. government gave Jeffrey Epstein's co-conspirators, any and all co-conspirators, um, immunity from federal prosecution, like, ever. Um, that's insane. I mean, that's, like, a, almost unheard of. That's a big deal. And so the fact that th- th- there's been an ongoing lawsuit for a few years now brought by some of the victims of Jeffrey Epstein against the federal government for their handling of this case, saying that they violated this Victim Crimes Act uh, because they did not uh, they did not inform the victims of the plea deal. Uh, and the plea deal is, by the way, is still secret. Like, there's an effort right now to get the plea deal unsealed. Um, but yeah, it was done in complete secrecy. So, but basically the point is, is that one of the girls is saying that Alan Dershowitz was one of the people, one of Jeffrey Epstein's associates who she was repeatedly forced to have sex with. Um, and she names the occasions and where and when it happened. Uh, I mean, it's really disturbing stuff. And the point is that this means that if it's true, Alan Dershowitz helped secure a plea deal that grants himself immunity from, because uh, that would make him a co-conspirator, that grants himself immunity from ever being federally charged for sleeping with an underage girl. Um, so this has been ongoing, and I mean, it's like an insane story just because of the fact that so many high-profile people are involved. Like, this girl also named Prince Andrew of Britain um, as another person she was forced to have sex with. She also says she was forced to have sex with several, like, world leaders, Um uh, at least one prime minister, um, several, um, several high power, like uh, several very high profile and powerful American politicians and CEOs. Um, and so this could potentially be super explosive. And given just the extent of the people who may have like at some point been involved, not maybe they didn't like sleep with these girls, but they knew what was going on because apparently this guy, Jeffrey Epstein was surrounded by these girls like all the time. Um, there's like a lot of people who could be implicated, which suggests that perhaps the federal government was as well trying to like, you know, keep it under wraps because of it would like literally, I mean, if this is true, it would be like super, it would like implode, you know, it would implode like elites in America. Uh, but more importantly, um, Alan Dershowitz has been, uh, in the news. Like, so Alan Dershowitz is a very influential figure. You know, this, well, he's like throwing tra- he throws tantrums, right? He's, yeah, oh he's getting- yeah, but he's very effective and he's very popular and so popular that 38 Harvard Law School professors signed their names to a letter in support of Alan Dershowitz as someone who's courageous, um, like against these rape allegations, saying he's courageous and like uh, he, he's um, a, a voice for like the underdog or something. Like it's ridiculous because Alan Dershowitz is the opposite of that. Like. Alan Dershowitz is the biggest bully ever. He uses his influence and power to destroy people, to destroy the weak, not, like, on behalf of the powerful. I mean, yeah, he defends, like, wife killers and rapists who happen to be, like, rich rich celebrities, but he goes after rape victims and, and like, he, you know, and he goes after, like, he, he literally, he defends, um, he defends rapists and wife killers almost as aggressively as he defends Israel. It's actually like shocking. And in recent like in recent weeks, I mean, he's been all over the news uh, on like a media blitz just defending himself and saying that this girl's a liar. He's calling her a prostitute. Like he's calling an underage um, victim. She was a child victim of Jeffrey Epstein, of sexual abuse by a pedophile. Okay? And he's going around calling her a prostitute. 
Um, I mean, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable, like, what he's been saying. And I, I actually, like, dug through some of his past work just, like, on rape in general. And he's actually, like, I think that maybe because he's been, like, such a leading voice in in terms of, like, torture, like, he's been a lead advocate for torture, for, like, legalizing it. Um, and he's, I mean, he's, he played a big role in that. Um, and he, I mean, and, you know, and, and a lot of that has to do with his defense of Israel. Um, but he's just like a big advocate for taking away protections from like the already weak who have very few protections, like, you know, Palestinians, for example. He's also, but I think that a part of what he's done throughout his career has gone unnoticed, which is his attack against not just rape victims, but sexual abuse, like child victims of sexual abuse. Um, but he's basically, like, he's been, like, a lead advocate for publishing the names of rape victims so that people can go after their reputation. He's been, like, he, like, has been a lead advocate for the idea that false rape allegations are so widespread. Um, and as a result, there's, like, all these apparently, like, innocent men being accused of rape left and right and maybe even going to jail for it. Like, which, okay, yes, false rape allegations do happen. That's absolutely true. Just like any other, just like any other crime, there are false um, charges. Absolutely. But, like, that is the, the way that he puts it. He blames, like, feminists. He's like, this is- he thinks, like, feminists control the criminal justice system. Um like these, like these, uh, these free speech hating feminists control the control the police departments around the country, and as a result, men are being persecuted um, by vindictive women who like are mad and want revenge, like for whatever reason, and just like want to accuse them of raping them. Like it's it's insane. So I like go and document all this in a recent piece I wrote, and it's actually it's like, utterly shocking. Um, and yeah, it's like gone pretty much under the radar. But now I think I think it, it suggests that like he's a bigger asshole than we thought he was. <laughs> I mean, I guess the suspicion would the suspicion would be that he's got these views because he himself has been involved in like a it's a human trafficking. Well, they, I mean, he's had, but he has he's had these views for years. Like, I mean, I went back. Like, let me just let me just. This is one thing that I could not. Um, that was just like utterly. It's been ongoing. Like, it's not just in recent years because this happened. This whole Jeffrey Epstein thing was happening like in the early two thousands. Um, but even through the nineties, like he was like screaming about Rada. He wrote an entire book called the abuse excuse. And a, a large portion of that book is devoted to going after like women who claim that they're battered and that's why they killed their husbands and like trying to like paint these women as like leaders of radical feminism. Like he literally, it's like he, the way he talks like, like Lorena Bobbitt, who, if, I'm sure everybody knows who Lorena Bobbitt is. She cut off her husband's penis um, in the early 90s and claimed that he had raped her. Um, he wouldn't end up being convicted of rape. But regardless, like, he tries to say this whole book, I mean, he just keeps mentioning Lorena Bobbitt. Like, he brings up these cartoon character type women as though, like, this is what women are. And as a result, like, you know, feminists are trying to, like, destroy men. I mean, it's, it's like men's rights. Like, you would, it's like reading a men's rights forum. It really is. It's it's amazing. But one thing he that I found that he did write, like, back in 1985, um, there was this Olympic gold medalist who uh, was swept up in, a, um, in, like, a prostitution sting on, like, Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles by the LAPD. Um, and Alan Dershowitz was furious. He was just absolutely furious. And so he wrote this entire opinion piece about how um, it was vindictive. It was the fault of vindictive feminists. That's what he said. Vindictive feminists, like he basically held them responsible 
for the fact that men were being swept up in these prostitution rings because apparently vindictive feminists have so much control um over uh over the police department um that and they're so angry that sex work is um illegal and that women are like you know being arrested for being sex workers that they demand men be arrested too and so that's why the police end up sweeping up these men and then he goes on to say and i just like i'll just read this and i'll be done with this story but it's just uh, shocking he goes on to say there really is an enormous difference in the impact between the arrest of a professional prostitute and the arrest of an otherwise law-abiding citizen who who occasionally seeks the taste of the forbidden fruit of sex for hire. For the prostitute, an occasional arrest is an expected occupation hazard. The quick arrangement, ba- arraignment, bail, and fine are regarded as a cost of doing business. She is back on the street hustling her next john within hours. Certainly there is little stigma or embarrassment in being arrested. The streetwalker publicly advertises what she's doing every time she puts on her uniform and takes to the sidewalks. For the John, the public arrest can be a catastrophic event. It can ruin a marriage, destroy a reputation, scar his children, terminate a career. (laughs) I mean, is this like... Because people have been occupied by all the stories around Bill Cosby. And it seems like when you're thinking of like rich and famous, this almost seems like a higher level of, of, of just sinister criminality. But then also it's like... I mean, these lawyers and and, and these these famous people who all, like, conspire together to go after women, it's just despicable. I know it is. I mean, even if, exactly, like, even if Alan Dershowitz is innocent, and let's, I mean, just, you know, a disclaimer, like, he hasn't actually been charged with anything. The reason, you know, like, he, so it's, like, not fair to just, to say he's guilty, right, just because we don't like him. Um... But and we definitely don't like him. But um, but at the same time, just the, the just his behavior around this case and the behavior of yeah, all these high-powered lawyers to like to to bully rape like rape victims who are in high school um, is incredible. Just utterly, it, it's incredible and and almost like it, it's it's so unbelievable. And also just to point out, Jeffrey Epstein, convicted pedophile, he only ended up spending 13 months in jail at a, at Palm Beach jail. We're in a private wing, I'm sorry, a private wing of Palm Beach jail, where he was allowed to leave for 16 hours a day for work. That's not jail. Yeah, I know. He basically just had to go sleep there. Like, that's it. So, um, I mean, that's I'm, that's just an absurd kind of justice. Like, that's, that's not justice. I mean, and it just also speaks to, on another level, you know, the two-tiered justice system in this country, where somebody can run an underage child sex trafficking ring that spans the globe. He also, because he, like, the, he had girls imported, like, as young as 12. One time there was, like, 12-year-old girls imported from other countries, like, poor girls. I mean, this, God, this story runs so deep. It's just, like, it's, it, you know, it's, you'd need, like, hours to talk about all of it. But the point is, is that it's just, it's incredible that it didn't get more attention. Like, this was the first I heard of it was because Alan Dershowitz was being accused of raping um, an underage girl. I had never heard of this story before. Um, and just the fact that it involves so many high-profile people um, and, you know, it's just, like, a perfect example of how in America, like, if you've got money and you're in the right circles, um, and, you know, you can, you can you can get away with raping a bunch of underage girls. <laughs> And you can lurk on MySpace pages. Right, exactly. <laughs> Go through their bios and look for all kinds of stuff. And then probably, like, 
even get off to it and maybe even go prey on these girls too while you're also trying to shame them to the government. Yeah, exactly. I mean, literally. And there's also something to be said about um, about uh, the fact that, like, you know, one of the reasons that Jeffrey Epstein was so connected was he had um, a group of friends like that had sort of like, especially one guy in particular, um, Leslie Wexner, uh, who's this like billionaire uh, who is just like all about Israel um, and very very wealthy? Uh, it basically facilitated Jeffrey Epstein's um, you know rise in elite circles, like introduced him to people and made him who he is. He even bought him like a thirteen million dollar apartment um, in Manhattan, and uh, and Jeffrey Epstein was like a big Israel supporter, and so a lot of like his circle of friends. Um, Similarly, were these like hardcore Israel supporters, um, and there is talk about like it's like one of you know the girl who mentions Alan Dershowitz also says that she was forced to sleep with at least one prime minister, and the one there is one prime minister that it, that appear you know that who appears in um in uh in Jeffrey Epstein's like this like black book he has of like phone numbers and also was like a really good buddy of his who flew around on his plane and that was you know former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak um I mean who knows if that's who it was but like and also there was one time like at one point like Jeffrey Epstein had considered fleeing to Israel to evade um prosecution in the U.S. like a Roman Polanski style um but it's funny because he actually decided that Israel wasn't for him he didn't like it there so he'd rather just, you know, deal with jail here, um, which is kind of hilarious in, in a lot of ways. Uh, but yeah, it's so there's like this this Israel aspect to it, too, where just like it, it just kind of reminds you that being being there's a, there's like a club in this country, like a pro-Israel club in this country, like pro-Israel being pro-Israel is really synonymous with being powerful in this country. It's like you don't see ants, you don't see, you know, critics of Israel who are billionaires, you know? Um, it just comes to the territory, just like kind of being pro-U.S. military, you know? Or being like, just being for the status quo. Um, and, and, and you know, being for Israel happens to be a part of that status quo, and it really does, like, I th- you know, I think open doors for you in a lot of ways. So that's my spiel on all that. And keep your eye on that story, because Alan Dershowitz is just sounding like a bigger, bigger, you know, an even more creepier person than we had unhinged totally really yeah completely unhinged anyways on that note i think we are out of time yep um so thank you for listening um and we will be back next week